I'm Bonnie Harrison and welcome to the Details Long Read. This week it's At the Mercy of the Ice by Alan Rikers, published in New Zealand Geographic's March-April edition. It's a story told in detail for the first time of a dramatic survival on the Antarctic ice in the summer of 1972. Four young scientists spent five days stranded at sea, jumping between ice flows that shattered and sank beneath them, risking their lives with every jump. You can find the entire article with maps, original photos and lots more detail on nzgeo.com. This is an abridged version of At the Mercy of the Ice. Monday, 27 November 1972. Nothing comes easy in Antarctica. It takes four strapping students four weeks to cut a boat ramp through the thick ice of the shoreline. The men have chainsaws, picks, a crowbar and a cobra drill, but their efforts are hampered by bad weather. Storms roll in every few days, confining the men to their hut and sweeping fresh jumbles of pack ice ashore. Each time, the group emerged to find the gap they had dug refilled. Each time, they start again. Today, they're buzzing. They have finally fashioned a decent six-metre ramp, more than enough for their trimaran, RV Cleone, which had been stored behind the hut over winter and airlifted down to the beach a month earlier. The sea beyond the ramp is free of ice, and the days are beauty. Early evening, sunny and still. You can see clear across McMurdo Sound to the peaks of the Transantarctic Mountains. Our foursome are all 20-something University of Canterbury students, all long-haired and bearded, all drawn south to this wilderness by the promise of adventure and cutting-edge science. Warren Farrelly, a geography master's student, is here to survey the rocky ridge formations of Priapolis Point. The other three are part of a marine biology study led by Jim Lowry, a charismatic American PhD candidate with several years' experience in the Antarctic. Graham Fenwick and Paul Sagar are still undergrad students, but both already have an Antarctic season under their belt. The trio plan to tow a sledge off the back of the trimaran, skimming a net along the seafloor and scooping up the tiny invertebrate animals that live there. Cape Bird Hut is home for the summer. It's a boxy green shack overlooking an Adelie penguin colony on the shores of McMurdo Sound, about 100 kilometres north of Scott Base. Farrelly's spent the day down the coast recording geographic observations. He trudges up to the hut. Fenwick calls out, Would he like to come out on the boat and take some photos? They'll only be a short while. Cruise around, come back in. Too tired, thinks Farrelly, but then might as well. Lowry is uneasy. Farrelly wavers. They should probably leave someone on shore to man the radio, but it will only be a quick trip, right? Farrelly slings his camera over his shoulder. Lowry and Farrelly exchange a look, but they say nothing and climb aboard, afloat at last. The trimaran is only about 100 metres offshore when the motor stops. While Lowry attempts to restart the motor, which he'd tested extensively before departing, Fenwick, Farrelly and Sagar lean on the rails, 
gazing into the inky depths and admiring the stark rock and ice scenery. After a few fitful sputters, Lowry tries the backup motor instead. It starts with the first pull, and they turn back towards the shore. But 30 seconds later, this motor dies too. For an hour or so, they swap motors, switch fuel lines and tanks, and get nowhere. The men are concerned. A persistent wind and current are pushing Cleone south, away from the shore. Meanwhile, the pack ice, the soup of free-floating flows and chunks, has swirled around and is closing in on them. With both outboards useless, the men try another tactic. Donning a life jacket, Sagar jumps onto a floe sloshing alongside and anchors the trimaran's winch cable into the ice with an ice axe. They haul the boat slowly towards the shore. But within two flow lengths, the ice tightens further around Cleone, leaving no space to manoeuvre. Before she's bulldozed completely, they use the winch to pull the trimaran onto a large, flat flow. Meanwhile, the pack ice has been drifting south. The men are now swiftly approaching a large, dark berg grounded just off Priapolis Point. The pack splits as it approaches the behemoth, like a river flowing around an island, and some flows are veering out into McMurdo Sound. Unfortunately for the men, it looks like their flow is destined to swing offshore. They can hear the ice in the sound grinding and groaning. It's ugly out there. The decision is unanimous. It's time to abandon ship. In the Antarctic summer, daylight persists for 24 hours. It's now 11.30pm and the sky is still clear blue. Being able to see is life. The men scramble to grab emergency gear, life jackets, a length of rope and food from the trimaran. With Lowry in the lead, they begin hopping from flow to flow, heading towards the towering north face of the stationary berg. They hurl heavy tins of emergency gear across gaps, then make the leap themselves. Sometimes the gap between flows is too wide, so they have to use small, floating lumps of ice as stepping stones, springing off each piece before it submerges into the slush. Tuesday, 28 November, 1972. Once they reach the inside edge of the grounded berg, they find the pack ice is dense and unmoving. Their sense of urgency melts away as they survey the patchwork of flows, trying to trace a route across the kilometre or so between them and the shore. Not one of the four thinks they're in any real trouble. They just have to lily pad hop back to the shore, walk down the beach to the hut, and radio Scott Base for a helicopter to retrieve the stranded trimaran. But as the men pick their way closer to the shore, the ice becomes thin and dark. It's sagging and soft, rotten ice that crumbles. You can see the sea through it. They're now about a hundred metres from the shore, tantalisingly close. The four huddled together on a small but stable floe. The crossing to the next good-sized sheet of ice looks treacherous. The water between these flows is minus 1.8 degrees Celsius, as cold as seawater can be without turning to ice. Fall in, and you have as little as 10 minutes of survival time. But now Lowry pulls on a life jacket, one of three they had on the boat, grabs the ice axe and ties the rope around his waist, then lowers himself face down onto the flimsy ice. He begins to slide and shimmy. As he nears the next flow, the ice begins to sag. Suddenly, it breaks, and Lowry's legs sink into the black water, so cold it shocks and numbs the muscle in an instant. 
he pitches his arm forward and rams the axe into the flow, hauling himself up to safety. Sagar, Fenwick and Farrelly follow in a similar fashion. All of them break through the ice, a below-waist baptism in the frigid sea. They swap their sodden socks for the dry ones they scavenged from Cleone. Now they're only 50 metres from the shore, but the good ice is behind them. The sheet separating them from safety is only about two centimetres thick. They're stuck. Shivering, the men polish off two blocks of chocolate and start running on the spot to warm up. Lowry thinks that if they just wait for the sun to dip behind the mountains, perhaps the ice will freeze a bit more and become passable. It's a happy thought. All four men remain optimistic. In the meantime, they tally up their rations. As the sun disappears behind the peaks of Mount Bird and Mount Erebus, the shadow descends and plunges the men into a deep chill. Their feet ache with cold, and they pace long and fast to stave off the icy bite. When the sun reappears an hour and a half later, the thin ice has not thickened. The renewed warmth of the sun brings a sliver of cheer, but any hope of crossing to the shore is dashed. It's 8am when a light southerly picks up. The mass of ice starts to move, including the tiny flow with its inadvertent commuters. Will they be pushed ashore and disembark in time for lunch at the hut, or will they be swept further out to sea? Physics isn't on their side, and an abrupt change in course carries the flow directly out to sea, and their icy life raft is shrinking. The surrounding ice has sped ahead, leaving the flow they're on exposed to wave action, the edges of the flow are crumpling, and it feels like it's riding lower in the water, ever so slowly sinking. The men have had no sleep for 36 hours. They become acutely aware of sounds. The flow is riddled with tunnels, and water slops through them eerily. In the early evening, the dwindling flow grazes a three-tiered, green-blue castle of ice. Lowry leads the group to their new home, and the old flow silently drifts away. The new flow gives the men room to move, a freedom they relish. There are also plate-like slabs of ice that they use to construct a shelter from the wind. The work is a welcome distraction. But once the shelter is complete, a relentless monotony returns. While Lowry, Sagar and Fenwick rest in the shelter, Farrelly's racing thoughts prevent him from lying still. He sees a C-130 Hercules plane descending towards the airfield at McMurdo, it's a tiny pinprick in the sky. Farrelly tries to polish up the tin lids so they'll be able to signal using flashes. They've now missed the first of their three radio check-ins for the week. Scott Bass expected to hear from them at 6.10pm. Surely they'll send a helicopter to check. It's closing in on midnight, and above Mount Erebus, a storm is building. Wednesday, 29 November, 1972. Lowry, on watch, tells the men to stand up. A wave crashes over the flow, smashing the ice shelter. The men retreat to the lower tier of the flow behind their demolished refuge, clinging to their gear and each other as the flow pitches and rolls. Whitecaps roar up McMurdo Sound and burst over the two-metre-high flow, surging up to the men's knees. The spray is freezing. Biting water pours into their gumboots. Cracks are forming across the creaking flow. A great white fracture splinters the green ice between Farrelly's feet. 
his right leg drops 15 centimetres. The next door flow snaps, a portion breaking off and overturning, sending the surrounding pack ice into a series of violent seesaws. They all think this is the end. Lowry starts to swear at every wave as it hits the flow. Sagar thinks it would be easy just to slip over the side and disappear. After an hour or so, a blessed lull in the weather. It's an opportunity to move before their flow is pounded to bits. The flow they're on now is a large disc about 40 metres across. It's split in three by blocks of ice that provide shelter from the wind, crucial at this point, with exposure symptoms setting in. The flow is floating a good metre above sea level and is dusted with snow. A fresh assault of weather is brewing above Mount Erebus and the men construct another shelter using a natural windbreak and some slabs of loose ice. It's a real beauty, much cosier than their last one. When the renewed storm hits, the men huddle in the shelter. Their flow is tucked away from what they call the firing line on the edge of the ice pack, so is protected, for now. As the flow edges near to the firing line, the wind and sea fall calm. A clear, sunny day. The men sunbathe as the flow drifts lazily into Walschlag Bay. There's no chance of reaching the shore. A cliff of ice 15 metres high borders the sea. They're not lost. All four men know exactly where they are, yet they can do nothing but wait and rest. While the sunshine means warmth, it also sends an intense glare ricocheting off the ice scape. Lowry and Fenwick are suffering from snow blindness, a temporary inflammation of the eye caused by excessive ultraviolet radiation. Struggling to see, they try cutting islets in their balaclavas and in bits of cardboard. The eyewear is only mildly helpful. Their eyes are too far gone. Lowry becomes disillusioned. All he can see is a blur. In the evening, Sagar catches sight of an orca. He knows that orcas overturn flows to catch seals. The men keep quiet and hidden behind the ice shelter. Thursday, 30 November, 1972. At about 2am, the ice begins to jiggle. The noise is hell on the nerves. The men are in bad shape. They have no protection from the growing chop and nowhere to go. Their flow begins to pitch. The wind howls. But for a moment, their attention is dragged away from the worsening storm, a lone Adderley penguin seeks refuge on their flow and waddles towards the clump of men. Sagar creeps up behind it. As an ornithologist, he feels uneasy. Why should this penguin die just to help him? But he lunges at the bird anyway. He owes it to the others and ensnares it in his arms. Fenwick, a hunter, has no qualms about wringing the penguin's neck. As the wind fizzles out, Fenwick skins the penguin with his pocket knife and removes its meat, cutting it into small cubes which are portioned into Cheesedale cheese boxes. Lowry encourages the men to sample the meat smeared with a bit of marmite. Farrelly and Sagar struggle to keep their first taste down. Fenwick thinks it's a bit like very rare steak. As the day wears on, the men lose confidence in the seaworthiness of their flow. The water is eating its edges. Within a few hours, it loses one-third of its original size. So when they are butterflow that appears more structurally sound... It's moving time again. This new flow is much flatter than the last. It groans and creaks with every wave that passes. There's a large crack down the middle of it, 
and Lowry and Farrelly are alarmed to discover they can fit an entire fist into the crack up to their elbow. As a southerly rises, the men set about building yet another shelter. They're exhausted. It now takes two men to lift a block of ice that previously required one. Lowry, plagued by his snow blindness, sits as the shelter is built around him. They've now missed their second radio call with Scott Base, scheduled for 6.10pm. Friday, 1 December, 1972. The pattern of early morning foul weather looks set to repeat. Chop is mashing the flow they just left into small bits and mush. Farrelly watches as it disintegrates, pacing a triangular course around the new flow, waiting and watching. How long will this one last? A helicopter resupply flight to Cape Bird is scheduled for later this afternoon. The men scan the sky. It's mid-afternoon when the maddening silence is punctuated by the throb of an Iroquois heading towards the hut. Ninety minutes later, the helicopter roars back over Ross Island. On arriving at Cape Bird Hut, Scott Base leader Peter Fraser initially thinks the men might be working nearby. Then he realises that the trimaran is absent too. He rummages through papers in the hut. The calendar was last crossed off on 25 November. Fraser radios Scott Base. It's time to swing into a search and rescue operation. For the four on the ice, it's an excruciating three-hour wait before the aircraft search begins. They see a helicopter return to Cape Bird and a Hercules belt around the coast and begin a grid search pattern across the sound. But all the search activity appears to be to the north of them. The beat of the helicopter gets louder now. It appears over Harrison Bluff and begins to trace the ridge of Walschlag Bay, sweeping within 200 metres of the men stranded on the flow. They run about in a frenzy, waving coats, trying to attract attention. There's no way they won't be seen. The helicopter is so close they can see the loadmaster looking out the back window. Lowry sets off a flare that seems to bounce off the helicopter's windshield. The helicopter wags its tail. They've been spotted. But then the helicopter turns and glides back towards McMurdo. They must be going back to refuel, gather more help, the men agree. They bundle up their belongings for a speedy exit. They had not been seen. Saturday, 2 December 1972. Bitter disappointment sets in. The men retreat into their own thoughts. Eventually, Farrelly and Lowry emerge from their solitude to discuss the dire possibility of the flow breaking up. They think it might be best to just jump into the water. You'd go numb so quickly you wouldn't feel a thing. Fenwick remains the optimist. It never crosses his mind that they won't be rescued. The search continues through the night. Multiple aircraft fly up and down, up and down the sound. The flare had been useless, too pale against a surrounding white glare, so Fenwick and Farrelly experiment with burning kapok from a life jacket. The smoke is white. Useless. They cut four centimetre strips off the tops of their gumboots, and when a Hercules passes nearby, light the bundle of rubber. Black smoke curls up in ribbons, but there isn't enough of it, and it is soon blown away by the wind. The men return, dejected, to the ice shelter. It's early morning when the sound of aircraft recedes and doesn't return. It's around 9am when the air search resumes, but again, the focus seems to be north of Walshlag Bay. Mid-afternoon, a Hercules flies low above them. 
It completes a few laps of the sound, then continues north, headed for New Zealand. From the Hercules, Alvin Boger scans the sea ice. He spots a flash from the pack below. Could it be them? He informs the crew who radio the position back to McMurdo and Scott bases. At McMurdo Station, two American helicopter pilots are waiting to hear whether the search will resume. There's chatter on the radio. Hercules has just radioed in a sighting of something in the ice. Is it worth investigating? As the higher-ups debate whether to restart the search, the pilots watch dark clouds gather around the slopes of Erebus. A storm is coming. They note down the position and prepare for takeoff, despite not yet getting the go-ahead. They don't wait for permission. They have to go now. Back on the ice flow, the men's ears prick up. A thrum. It's the first helicopter in a while. The thrum grows louder. On the ice, pandemonium. The men holler. They hug. They huddle in one corner of the flow to give the pilot room for an approach. But then Lowry remembers the crack down the middle of the ice. He starts to wave the pilot away. The pilot just waves back and keeps on coming, landing right across the crack. He hovers, placing as little weight as possible on the fragile flow. The crewman gives a thumbs up. Get in here. The men nearly bowl him out the other side with their enthusiasm. The pilots are gobsmacked that the four scientists are all in one piece and in fairly good physical condition. The flight back to McMurdo Station, the American base, is turbulent with rising wind. They've just beaten the storm. After three days recuperating at McMurdo and Scott Base, the four men fly back to New Zealand, where a media blizzard awaits them. The scrutiny is intense. There's an inquiry, too. It finds that Lowry, as leader of the party, made several mistakes. These included not letting Scott Base know that they were heading out on the water, not properly maintaining the trimaran motors, and allowing Farrelly to join them on the boat. The inquiry concludes that the trimaran motors likely failed due to use of old fuel, which was left over from the previous season and may have been contaminated with water. But it also finds that the response of Scott Base was inadequate. The two- to three-day interval between check-in radio calls is deemed insufficient. Plus, the communication logs had not been kept updated. This might have alerted someone earlier that things were amiss at Cape Bird. The inquiry goes further, recommending a raft of other survival equipment be made mandatory. Sagar put in two further summers on the ice and went on to a long career at Niwa studying seabirds. He says those five long days on the ice taught him that there can be large consequences from seemingly small, simple decisions. The men suffered anxiety and nightmares for a long time, symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, although we didn't have a name for it in those days, says Fenwick. I still think about it now and then, says Sagar especially when the weather is bad. That was At the Mercy of the Ice by Alan Rikers, published in New Zealand Geographic's March-April issue. The detail's long read is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. We'll be back next week with another long read. Matewa.